welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. Is the behavior I observe from my child or teen stemming from a root cause of anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, or pathological demand avoidance? So this is an excellent question. It's one I get a lot from parents who are trying to discern what can help their child. And today I'm gonna be providing a free training on exactly this question. So we're gonna do five things today together. We're gonna talk about two surface level behaviors and why they are confused with different neurotypes, which is avoidance and controlling behavior. Second, we are going to walk through an oversimplification from a parent perspective of what each of these different root causes is, OCD, anxiety, and PDA, pathological demand avoidance. Then we are going to talk about why it matters, what the root cause is, because they merit very different approaches to support your child. And then we're going to talk about why a sequential approach to supporting your child is so important. And then we will finish with an open Q&A, which will be focused on this particular question and questions about the Paradigm Shift program. Okay, without further ado, let's get started. Okay, so normally when parents come to me and have this question, It's not always about neurotypes specifically. It's often with parents who have already identified that their child has PDA, but they're like, I think they also have anxiety or I think they also have OCD. How do we discern and unpack what's causing what? And it's a great question. And then sometimes if parents are earlier in their journey, they might actually be asking, I don't know if my child has OCD. They've been been diagnosed with OCD because of all this controlling behavior, but maybe they're PDA. I don't know the difference and I don't know which approach to use because they're different. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So there are two types of observed behaviors that usually lead to this confusion. One is avoidance and one is controlling behavior. So let's first go through avoidance and see how it can play out in these three different neurotypes. Okay, so let's take sleep. Perhaps your child is anxious and avoiding sleep because they are thinking about all the things they're afraid that could happen in the dark. They're worried that the monsters will come out. They're worried that something will happen in the dark. They're worried they won't wake up in the morning. They're worried that they won't actually sleep. Okay, so this is a anxiety-driven response and therefore avoidance of sleep where they're trying to delay sleep. They don't want to sleep, okay? So this happens a lot with my younger son, William. That would be more of an anxiety-driven, ruminative, cognitive process that's fear about the future that something can happen, okay? And that leads to avoidance of sleep. Next, we can take obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is also cognitive, but it is potentially having obsessive thoughts 
that appear only at nighttime, perhaps because the child is having a quiet moment and they're no longer in activity or watching a screen, etc. And they have intrusive thoughts, which are scary, and they might need to do a series of things either inside their own head or like a series of activities like putting the the light switch up and down or, you know, needing to walk through the routine in a particular way and starting over if we don't do it in a particular way because something bad could happen, okay? Which would lead to what is perceived as a parent by the parent as avoidance of sleep, right? And then the third example is PDA, which is the child is resisting sleep. Perhaps they are in fight, flight, or freeze. They might be going limp and you can't carry them up the stairs. They're hiding, walking on windowsills, running away from you, flight. They are kicking and screaming or pushing you away as you're trying to get them into bed. And these can be more subtle as a teen, but these are fight, flight, freeze responses. Although as a parent who doesn't necessarily know the root cause, we might just be viewing it as avoidance. With the pure PDA lens, this wouldn't be based on fear necessarily of the dark or what could happen or intrusive thoughts. It's simply a reflexive and subconscious response to the perception that they must go to sleep, that you're above them, telling them that they must go to bed, or an accumulation of nervous system activation stemming from previous perceptions of losses of autonomy and equality, which build in the system and disable the child from sleeping. However, in these three examples, it might look very similar on the surface, right? What the parent sees is my child won't sleep. <laughs> so of course you're going to have this question of like, what is going on inside of their brain? What is the root cause? Why are they resisting sleep? And any of these three things, anxiety, OCD, and or PDA could be causing it. So of course you're confused, right? And especially with younger children or, or if your child has social communication differences, which PDA children often do, they may not be able to tell you what's going on inside their head, that they have a fear, that they're worried about something, or that they actually don't know why they're resisting sleep, which is actually quite common among PDA kids because it's happening on a subconscious level. Okay, so that's avoidance, one of the two behaviors that we see with any of these three neurotypes or brain differences. <clears throat> and then the second is even more pronounced and often associated with OCD and PDA, which is controlling behavior. Okay, so this happens with anxiety too. You feel anxious about something, you're worried or ruminating about the future, or what could happen. You want to place control on the situation, right? Which can feel like you're solving the problem. And I know that because I have generalized anxiety. I've been diagnosed with panic disorder. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. Okay. With OCD, there may be repetitive behaviors or mental acts that are carried out to reduce or prevent anxiety or distress and are perceived to prevent an event or situation. Okay. Controlling. But the third aspect is PDA controlling behavior, okay, which is 
distinct and unique in a nuanced way. So let me give you an, a story to illustrate this and why it's so reasonable that a parent would be confused. Okay, so when my son was in nervous system burnout, was around the ages of like five and a half, four and a half, five and a half, even six, he would control me. So if I was sitting on the couch, I couldn't look at my phone or he'd say, mama, are you looking? You need to look at the show. He would control my line of vision. I couldn't even like daze off or like stare at the wall and be in my own thoughts because he would perceive it and be like, mama, are you watching? Mama, are you looking? He would control where I could sit. He still does this sometimes. He would control whether or not I could go to the bathroom, whether or not I could eat. And he would also control things like whether and how my younger son William could play and how things could be set up in the house, etc. So obviously, and I had this question too of like, this seems like OCD behavior, which was one of the primary and first lenses we explored. But what this actually is, is equalizing behavior. Okay, so equalizing behavior is the nervous system response that comes from the perception of threat in the body. So with PDA kids and teens, any perception that they are below you or not equal to you, or they don't have autonomy, freedom, choice, it's going to tell their nervous system, hey, we're in mortal danger, either set off the fight flight response or set off the freeze response. So that's what the nervous system does. It's either if it's fight flight, they're do, you know, the body's releasing adrenaline, cortisol, the metabolism is speeding up, blood is rushing to the limbs. It's an actual physiological response. Or if it's more of a freeze response, we're going to have the blood rushing to the core away from the extremities, metabolism slowing down, endorphins hiking up, and a whole different process. Okay, but that is all happening inside the body right? You may see some things if you look very closely about like pupils dilating or like are their hands losing circulation, but it's really hard to see the physiological processes, which is why we often notice first and foremost the behavioral expression of that, which is equalizing, which is the behavior, the controlling behavior the child or teen is engaging in to get back to a place of nervous system safety. So this can look like controlling your words, correcting your words, telling you whether or not you can do something a certain way. It can also look like destruction of items, like accidentally destroying a sibling's thing. It can be taking the leaves off plants that are yours, that you like, <laughs> destroying your tomato plants outside, walking by and knocking you know, your books off a table, etc. Okay, so that is behavior that looks controlling. But what's unique about it is that equalizing behavior manifests specifically towards and in the presence of another safe nervous system. Okay, so equalizing will occur with a PDA child or teen specifically and most often with the person they feel safest with, okay? So that, or who's the weakest. So it's often the lead parent, because they often mask around the one who is still doing behavioral parenting <laughs> and in school and around the grandparents and around therapy, unless they've reached burnout, in which case they're not masking anymore, or towards a sibling who's perceived as the weakest. Like the, 
amygdala, the limbic system or part of the brain that's survival oriented, is just perceiving or not safety. And that's when equalizing behavior comes out. So what makes this different subtly, potentially something you can observe is, is this controlling behavior directed specifically at the safest or weakest person? Or is it simply controlling behavior towards an object in the vicinity, right? That's not an object affiliated with the sibling, right? So like for my son, it's not random how he equalizes. It's not just like, okay, I'm going to go in the room and rearrange the bookshelf. It's I'm going to tear the pages out of the book or rearrange the books that his sibling is specifically playing with, right? It's equalizing against another safe nervous system. So that is a subtle seed that I want to plant with you because ultimately no one's going to tell you the answer of like, you're not going to like, well, maybe there are a couple practitioners and kudos to you out there, whoever you are, shout out. But like there are very few clinical offices that you're going to walk into and it's just going to be like, yep, you're PDA, right? Often, I would say the majority of the time, the parents have to be discerning and advocate for any type of diagnosis that includes demand avoidance. So we have to be the ones collecting data with our own two eyes to discern and advocate. Oh, actually, I don't think this is OCD because this is what I'm noticing, right? The third aspect of this equalizing behavior is that can be extra confusing is that equalizing behavior can be turned towards self with more internalized expressions of PDA. So this could be <clears throat> destroying one's own things. For example, I once worked with a PDA identifying dad who, when he was equalizing towards self, he would pour out his own whiskey, his like expensive whiskeys. And until he understood the PDA lens, he didn't understand why he was doing that, right? It was like a reflexive thing he would do to get back to a place of nervous system safety. Okay, so there are subtle differences in what we can observe, although the root causes, the same different root causes can cause the same type of behaviors, avoidance and controlling. Okay, so that's the first thing I wanted to say. Next, I want to do an oversimplification and non-scientific but based in research definition of what each of these things are and how they're different. PDA, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, so I, in preparing for this free training and live, I did go through the DSM-5 and some other stuff that I've read based in research to help me articulate this, but it's not going to be like from a clinical perspective. I'm really stating this as a clarification for parents so they can start to think through these different lenses. Okay, so anxiety is specifically the perception of threat about a future state or scenario that you can cognitively perceive and then you ruminate on it and you want to control things to make it less uncertain. The key thing being there, it's cognitive in nature and it's future oriented. So you're actually worrying about something versus PDA, which is a threat perception in the moment based on a perceived loss of autonomy or equality that sets off the physiological response of the nervous system 
sometimes without the conscious awareness of the PDA child or teen. Okay, so this is extremely unique in the sense that it's much more like a trauma response in the moment rather than a ruminative cognitive process, which is anxiety. And also OCD is distressing ideas, images, or impulses that enter a person's mind repeatedly. The person finds these ideas difficult to resist. Stereotype behaviors that are not enjoyable, that are repeated over and over, and are perceived to prevent an unlikely event that is in reality unlikely to occur. Okay, so if we are thinking in a nuanced way, we can understand that OCD-like anxiety is future-oriented and more cognitive in nature. And of course, I'm creating these categories as binary categories when really things in the brain happen on a continuum, there are dimensions, but I'm just trying to help you as a parent discern what's going on, okay? So remember, for PDA, this is a subconscious perception, and it's not necessarily based on an emotion, a cognitive worry, or the future at all. And this is key. I found this key and I hope it's an aha moment for you because that's why I'm sharing it. Of like the subconscious perception of threat can happen in the brain of a PDA child or teen, even if they're emotionally happy in the moment and enjoying what they're doing and are not worried. Okay, for me, this like blew my mind because, and I can see it. For example, my son's at a water park. He loves the dopamine. It's novel. He loves the intense sensory experience. It's super regulating to him in a lot of ways. He's excited. He wanted to go. He was not worried about it. He's been there before. However, maybe he goes to the water park and he has to wait in a long line, right? He is, or a kid cuts in front of him, and then his threat response goes off. Why? Because he perceives a loss of autonomy in the moment, and he perceives he's not equal to the other kid. Okay, so he perceives threat in his body, even if his mind is having a great time and not worried about being at the water park. Okay, and it's happening on a subconscious level consistently. And so it can build in his system. He might have a great time the rest of the water park, but he comes home and then his stomach hurts and he feels like he needs to throw up. Why? All the excitement and the perceived losses of autonomy and equality are ramping up his metabolism and adrenaline is going and cortisol is going and he might not even be noticing it, right? Another example is him with football. My son is now doing football, team sport, which blows my mind. I don't know how long it's going to last because it's like we literally haven't done group activities or lessons or sports his entire life because it just, as you guys know, doesn't work. It's too dysregulating. But football has become a special interest. And so he has insisted and desired and, and begged and wanted to do football. So his dad is the coach and he's there to co-regulate, etc., but my son is having the time of his life on one dimension, right? He's not worried about making friends. He's so excited. He's super confident. And we've been working on the drills and occupational therapy and he's loving it, right? But when he's on the field, 
his brain is perceiving threat because he's not getting the ball or a kid is grabbing his flag or he's not the fastest one. And he knows cognitively, like, I might not be the fastest one and we might lose. And like, but in his body, the perception of threat is going off because there's things that activate his nervous system through the perception of losing equality to other kids on the field. Okay. That is very different than anxiety. He has both. Okay. And I'll talk to you guys about how to parse this and, and discern. Okay. So that's a key distinction in an oversimplified way, which is like the child or teen can be not worried or emotionally upset about something at all, but their brain is still perceiving threat. And this can happen with their own interests, right? Where the novelty of a special interest has worn off, something they really enjoyed before starts being perceived as an internal expectation, loss of autonomy or demand, and then the threat response goes off around something that they used to love, right? This is something that is unique to PDA, in my opinion, okay? So let me just take my personal story to illustrate how I understand this as well, and then I'll talk to you guys about why I think it matters, understanding the root cause. So I have severe anxiety. I take medication for it. When I was 26, I got diagnosed with panic disorder because I would have really severe and debilitating and disassociative panic attacks. So my anxiety was very much about what might happen. Was I going to pass my prelims? Was my dad going to die when I was away? Was X, Y, and Z going to happen? Was I going to be able to achieve X, Y, and Z? And it would just be like, rumination. Okay. Then I started having panic attacks, which I believe as a causal mechanism of what's going on in the nervous system is actually the closest my life could approximate to PDA, but I'll say why it's different. My first panic attack was in a law library at Columbia University. I was studying for a class called Conceptual Foundations. I was like reading about democratic transitions in Latin America. And I was just like quietly reading with two good friends reading their stuff. And all of a sudden, I had chest pains, my heart was racing. I couldn't see straight tingling up my spine. And I was like, what is happening? I felt like I was like in another dimension. And I went to the clinic on Columbia University's campus and was like, hey, I'm having a heart attack. And they were like, no, you're not. We're going to walk you over to the psychologist, right? And that was my first foray into voluntary therapy because I did have to go to therapy as a kid because my parents got divorced. Sorry, mom and dad. But I didn't really want to do it. But this time I was like, okay, I'll talk to the therapist or whatever. And that's when I like got on anti-anxiety medication, started therapy, started yoga, all the things, okay? So the reason I say those panic attacks were somewhat similar on one dimension with PDA is that it came out of nowhere. I wasn't worried in the moment and I was actually like pleasantly reading, right? But it was the accumulation of stress over time that pushed me past my threshold and then I started having panic attacks, which is analogous to what can happen to PDA kids over time 
they're not accommodated. The thing that makes it different is that my root cause was not because I was perceiving losses of autonomy or equality. My root cause was because I was a perfectionist and it was all about achievement, right? And I was in this master's program and I wasn't the best, right? I wasn't getting straight A's and like this really hard econ class. And I was like freaking out about it in a different moment, right? But that's different than the perception of losses of autonomy or equality to others. It was like, I need to be perfect or I'm not safe. Okay. And then after I had my first son, um, Cooper, I was diagnosed with postpartum anxiety, depression, and OCD. And so I had a little dabble into the OCD world, which was really about intrusive thoughts, right? Which was about every time I'm trying to care for this baby who won't stop crying, I have intrusive thoughts about throwing him over a balcony or drowning him in the bath, right? These were leading to my avoidance of not being near any high state, you know, I wouldn't go near railings or stairwells and I wouldn't bathe my son. Okay. Because I was having intrusive thoughts. As the therapist says, the fact that you're not acting on them is what matters. (laughs) But I kept having these thoughts. I also had the thoughts where I would, my husband would leave to go to work or he would leave to go to CVS to like pick up a prescription because I had had a C-section and all I could, like, I would just have intrusive thoughts about him getting shot. Okay. So those intrusive thoughts led to obsessive avoidance and compulsions of like making sure everything was safe of like, can't be near the bathroom, need to set up this, like this way, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So those are three different, like from my lived experience, examples of the different mechanisms, okay? Why does it matter? It matters because what matters is how to help your kids, okay? So OCD and anxiety treatment is very different than an accommodation approach to support your child, your PDA child. Let's talk about those differences because they're not, again, they're not binary One is not bad and one is good. This is not philosophical. It's simply understanding your child's brain and nervous system and what would help them, okay? So let's take anxiety and OCD. The most common treatment which works is gentle exposure-based treatments and cognitive-based therapeutic approaches. What does that mean? If a child is for example, really scared of the dark, and you're working with a therapist, you might have small doses of exposure to sleeping with a little bit more darkness so that the child doesn't get stuck in their brain with the fear and it becomes amplified in their thinking. And then it becomes something beyond what they can grapple with. And we want to like get them used to it. Okay versus a PDA child who is actually having a trauma response and so exposing them to something that is causing a perception of threat in their body will actually escalate and accumulate nervous system activation and make the avoidance worse, okay? So I have done cognitive behavioral therapy around anxiety and OCD. For example, the solution to 
my intrusive thoughts was like, okay, never go near a bathtub, never bathe your child. It was, you know, maybe we could do set your child on a towel, the infant on next to the bathtub. So you're in there, the water is running, but it's not raising and you can do like a washcloth bath right? So gentle exposure to something that was a fear. And the more I gently moved towards that fear and getting used to it, the more the cognitive fear of what could happen dissipated. However, if, for example, we have a PDA child who has a nervous system response to a bathtub, and we we force them into, you know, like, let's just sit near the bathtub and we'll do, you know, we'll do a washcloth wash. What's their brain perceiving? You're making the decision, so you're not equal to them. You're an authority and they don't have autonomy in the situation. And so it's building towards fight, flight, freeze. And it's actually causing a trauma response in their nervous system. And by not accommodating, we're making the avoidance worse. Okay, so neither of these are like normatively or philosophically right or wrong. They're simply two different root causes and two different ways of approaching support. Okay, so I want to be clear that I don't have anything against anxiety medication, gentle exposure, if that's the right approach for your child, or cognitive behavioral therapy. But Many of the parents find themselves in my world because they have gone that route and it's made things worse, okay? So what you're gonna see is most often a suggestion that, okay, your child has avoidance, they have controlling behavior, they seem really rigid, we don't think they're autistic because they're quite social and they make eye contact and their verbal development was normal. So we're gonna call it OCD and anxiety and we're going to do exposure, right? Why? Because those two things are in the DSM-5 and clinicians have been trained in it. So they're going to diagnose what they know and parents are going to work through an exposure lens, a getting used to it lens. Like they have to get used to it. They have to learn. And what's going to happen? It's going to make things worse. Okay. So I want you to tune in to your situation and your child and discern for yourself which is true for my child. Potentially, should we be working through a different lens? And only you can answer that question. So the last thing I want to say in this front is like, and I said this in the previous Clarity workshop series, which was about, is my child PDA autistic or autistic with a demand avoidance? Okay. It's often more than one thing. It's often they're PDA and they have generalized anxiety. Or I've worked with clients who have children. In fact, I'm working with one now and I've worked with multiple families who have children who are OCD and PDA, okay? So often what parents need to do to move forward and actually start to transform things in order to understand clearly what is actually going on is to commit to a different lens for a period of time and apply it consistently. Okay, so that is why I've designed the methodology I have, which is called the 5A framework. It's why I designed a three-month program called the Paradigm Shift Program, because it gives you an opportunity to gain clarity. It gives you a non-judgmental space to say, okay, 
we've tried the exposure route, we've tried going through this anxiety and OCD lens, but there is something else here, or we're not sure which is causing which. And so you have the opportunity to experiment in a non-judgmental space and track the data for your own child through an experimental approach, an accommodation approach. Okay, so we learn about the 12 most effective accommodations and over the long term we observe. Okay, often when parents, like myself actually, I did a year of an accommodation approach and then I could see clearly, okay, now that my son's activation has come down, what else is there, right? And there was a lot of anxiety. So what was our logical next step? My logical next step was using the connection, the trust, the communication, all of the things that we had built over the year of accommodating, I could actually communicate with him and be like, I wonder if you'd like to go see a doctor to help like help with this because he couldn't leave the house. And he was like, yeah. And so then when we were prescribed anti-anxiety medication, which is different than what, you know, the accommodation approach d does for PDA, he actually had a way of being able to take it autonomously and we could communicate about it. If I had tried to do the anti-anxiety medication a year prior, it would have been a no-go because he would have resisted, he would have thrown it in my face, he would have screamed, and we would have had no trust around it, and he would have perceived that I was his authority trying to make him do something, okay? The same is true for therapy. This is why I don't have an easy answer to like, what therapy should my child do? Because it's a sequential question. It's not what therapy. It's first, can we see what is going on with the nervous system? Bring down the level of activation so that you can actually communicate and understand your child to discern what Therapy might be the best fit, but sometimes that takes a long-term approach. And that is why we have the Paradigm Shift program, okay? So finally, I want to say that there is a space for some slight gentle exposure, but you can't use it effectively until you know where your child's threshold is. And most of parents, when they come into my world, and this was me too before burnout, their child or teen is so far past their threshold of tolerance that we don't even know what they can tolerate, right? There's the accumulation of threat is so high. So if we apply anxiety and OCD methods, which are exposure, we're just going to keep pushing them past that threshold versus an accommodation approach to bring them down. They're still going to have activation when they perceive a loss of autonomy and equality, but it's not going to put them into the fight, flight, freeze immediately and disable them from their basic needs, which means we can dance on the edge of resilience. Okay, I know that's become a dirty word in the neurodiversity affirming space, but I believe our children are resilient. I believe you are resourceful. And I believe there is a small space for supporting children by saying you can do this, right? Like this morning, we've been in this approach for four years now, and my son was anxious <laughs> because he could articulate it and say, I'm worried I'm not going to pass my karate class test today. And he was climbing all over me when I was doing my meditation, which is generally what happens because it's like a strewed invitation to come sit on a regulated nervous system. 
I barely ever get through the whole thing without that happening from one of my two kids. But he, you know, he was articulating his anxiety. And when I first started the accommodation approach, I would have been afraid to even support that. I would be like, okay, don't go, don't go, don't go. Because it's like, I got to accommodate. He can't feel the threat response. But now I've learned him and I've seen also from his father who pushes a little more than I do. Like sometimes he's like, he wants the support, the co-regulation, the like, no, you can do this. We can practice it, etc. It's discerning. But in order to do that, for many of you, we need to get your child below the threat response. And it sometimes takes like a year. So we have to put conversations about therapy or activities or making them do things on the back burner because it really is sequential and prioritizing a PDA lens. So if that is you, if that is something you're ready for and you feel like as I'm speaking to you, okay, like she's speaking my language, I'm ready to do something different, I'm ready to take action, then I invite you to enroll in the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com. To completely transform the way you think about and relate to your child and to bring peace and stability to your home, Join us for the next cohort of the Paradigm Shift program.